Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. I am very excited to be joined by our two guests today. Our two guests have just published a paper entitled Pollen-Inspired Enzymatic Microparticles to Reduce Organophosphate Toxicity in Managed Pollinators. And those two individuals, of course, are Dr. Scott McArt. Scott is an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell University in New York. And James Webb, who is the founder of Beemunity, he did part of his master's work on this very topic while at Cornell and Dr. Ming-Lin Ma's lab in biological environmental engineering. And they're here to talk about this new research they found to detoxify organophosphate compounds in honeybees. Scott and James, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks very much for having us, Jamie and Amy. Thanks, Jamie, excited to be here. Well, great. So guys, you know, we've got two of you, You're, you work together to publish this manuscript. For all you listeners out there, we're going to absolutely make sure and link in our show notes to the manuscript we're referencing, as well as to Beemunity, the company that James has. And you guys work together to address a very important topic in honeybees. But before we get there and talk about that, we just want to uh, introduce our listeners to you both. So Scott, James, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got interested in studying honeybees in the first place? Maybe Scott, we'll start with you and then James, you can add, uh, add your story as well. Sure. Yeah. So I can start. So I, I've always been interested in insects. I was one of those, you know, children who used to play with bugs in the backyard all the time growing up. I, but formally studying bees that happened in graduate school for me. So I, let's see. So I guess I've been doing bees since 2006, however many years that is. I'm getting too old to do the math. Uh, but yeah, now, now currently, so I'm uh, helping to run the Dice Lab for honeybee studies up here in New York with my collaborator in crime, Emma Walters. She's our, she's our honeybee extension associate here. Great. And yeah, I can take over. I, um, I, I guess pretty recently um, got into honeybee research. Um, it kind of started whilst um, I was doing my master's degree at Cornell. Before that, I did have some entomology experience. I used to work at a company which was developing uh, the production of insect protein for, for animal feeds. We were using black soldier flies then, so a bit different. But yeah, when I got going at Cornell, I was, I was looking for a project to hopefully do some good. And luckily, my professor kind of liked this idea of detoxification for for bees. So um, yeah, I, I got started on that. And I like to think I know a little bit more now than what I did back then. That's awesome. So I remember Dr. Mikar, I had reached out to you um, earlier this year and asked if you wanted to be on our podcast. And I remember you telling us, well, you know, we're actually in the middle of a project right now. Once that becomes published, then, you know, we can talk about it. So I'm excited to say that once we found that you had published the paper, uh, we, you know, reached out to you. And so we're so happy that the both of you, Scott and James were able to join us today. And so as Jamie mentioned earlier, you guys published a paper on the ability of enzymatic microparticles to reduce organophosphate toxicity and manage pollinators. It seems like a handful, a mouthful to say, I guess. And so can we just start from the top, start from the very beginning? Can you describe what organophosphates are and you know what, what do they have to do with pollinators? Sure. So I can start with this. So uh, organophosphates are one type of insecticide that are out there. So an insecticide is a type of pesticide that specifically targets insects and organophosphates happen to be one of them. Other types of insecticides that, you know, listeners might be aware of are like the neonicotinoid insecticides. So those have been in the news a lot lately. Organophosphates are an older chemistry, so they've been developed for, for much longer than the newer uh, neonicotinoids, but that doesn't mean they're still not in use. 
Um, so, you know, some organophosphates that, uh, that listeners, you know, might be aware of. Um, so chlorpyrifos is one that was just banned uh, in the United States. So that one's been receiving some media attention, but before that it was used in quite a few cropping systems. And then most beekeepers will be aware of cumafos. So cumafos is actually an organophosphate insecticide that has been used as a miticide within colonies. So there's several, you know, there's at least a couple dozen uh, organophosphates that are still used in the United States, but it's, it's a, yeah, it's a class of insecticide. So you had mentioned Kumafos, um, and you know I feel like the beekeepers that, especially the ones in the United States, are are quite familiar with it. So let's talk a little bit about documented impacts. So what kind of impacts are there on pollinators? And we can talk just about honeybees or pollinators in general, whatever you'd like to talk about. Sure. So I can I can take that question too. So you know there have been uh, documented bee kills from from organophosphates. Uh, you know, like any chemical insecticide, especially chemi- or synthetic chemical insecticides, there can be risk if they're used inappropriately or if uh, if they remain in the environment for these non-target organisms such as such as bees. Uh, so chlorpyrifos has been linked uh, to some uh, acute bee kills. Fosmet is another one. So the trade name for that is oftentimes uh, imidan. Is that's one of the main products that's used. Uh, but Fosmet has been linked to some acute bee kills. And then I think an important part about a lot of uh, a lot of these organophosphates is that many of them, actually most of them, are systemic insecticides. So similar to neonicotinoids, they they can sort of be incorporated into plant tissues. Unfortunately, that also gets into pollen and nectar. So not only does it provide you know, good protection against your crop pests that are eating the leaves or the flowers or whatever else that we're trying to protect against, but, uh, but they also get into pollen and nectar. And then the other thing that's um, a problem, because of their systemic activity, they're oftentimes very water soluble. So they can you know, leach around in soils and sometimes stay in soils for many, many years. Uh, so if they're in the soils, then they can, and they're systemic, they can be taken up by plant roots, you know, incorporated in the tissue again into the pollen and nectar. It's this whole cycle of like, we just can't get this stuff out of the environment and therefore it can impact non-target organisms. Mm-hmm. You know, people are always saying, well, pesticides killed my bees. And you know, when we're talking about pesticide, especially insecticides, well, yeah, sometimes they they will kill bees, right? They're, bees are insects, and we're we're talking about insecticides. And so, you know, I always think that's kind of interesting when I'm talking to a non-beekeeping audience. Sure, yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to, to point out that, you know, what gets in the news a lot is the acute bee kills that happen. Sure. Um, but those are pretty rare. Uh, it's pretty rare that I get a call, you know, from a beekeeper and say, listen, my bees died. Um, and, you know, we think it's, it's pesticides. And I should know this because uh, we run a residue lab, you know, in my lab. And, the, you know, the whole Bee Informed Partnership sends their samples to my lab to look, at, uh, to look at pesticides. And I have a lot of beekeepers who contact me. But it really is fairly rare um, that we get these acute bee kills. What's much more common is these sublethal levels of exposure that occur in the environment. And organ- organophosphates, because they're systemic insecticides, they're environmentally persistent, uh, and they're hydrophilic, so they're water-loving. They can sort of move around in groundwater and in soils, you know, leaching through things. Oftentimes, organophosphates are at sublethal effect uh, at levels that might affect bees or other insects. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you had mentioned things like chlorpyrifos and others. Those are things, right, that show up in residue tests a lot. And so those are things that have been kind of on my lab's radar for a while as, a while as well. So, you know, guys, you came together, you've established, right, that organophosphates can be harmful to bees in general, but honeybees specifically. But in your research, this paper that we're referencing, you suggest that it's possible to make them less toxic or less harmful in some way to bees, detoxify them or something. Could you give us a bit of a background of the research, how it came about, what your motivations and ideas for the projects were that ultimately led to what we're discussing today? Sure, I guess I can take that question. So I guess it really came about with just a a very fresh set of eyes on on the bee pesticide problem. I was actually just looking for um, a way to apply a Uh, a group project that we had going in our biomaterials lab. So to try and find a problem and and come up with a solution for it. And yeah, I, um, I thought, well, bees are always in the news. Um, There's, there's a clear 
public um, urge of excitement for trying to save the bees. Let's see if we can do something there. Um, yeah, I, I basically thought about this idea with a very fresh set of eyes, not really fully understanding the problem, I think. Um, and when I started to learn more about it, thought, well, huh, maybe we can think about essentially cleaning the bees from the pesticides that were within them. And my professor at the time liked the idea enough to, to try and pursue it. I approached Scott because obviously he had the, the expertise that, that we would need to, to kind of steer the ship in the right direction. And um, yeah, we, we, we managed to um, come up with a few different designs um, which managed to successfully detoxify um, those pesticides. And I guess what the detoxify part means is really breaking down um, those pesticides, in, in this case, organophosphates, into parts or constituent parts which aren't as toxic um, as the um, organophosphate in its you know, complete form. So what I can add to that, um, that's a great description, James. Um, what I can add to that is I remember distinctly when James got in touch with me, we had this wonderful meeting out in back of the dice lab. You know, there was bees, bees flying around and uh, it was just this beautiful sunny day. And I remember James said, yeah, we've developed something and that we think we can make bees immune to pesticides by feeding them this, uh, this you know, vehicle. And I thought, oh my God, who is this guy? He, this has about a 1% chance of working. I, I, I thought there is absolutely zero, just not any chance that this is gonna work. Um, but as we were talking, he started becoming much more, more and more convincing, you know, telling me about this, these microparticles, some of the other research that the lab had, uh, had done. And I thought, okay, you know, I left this meeting after uh, 45 minutes or something like that. And I thought, all right, well, it's not a 1% chance this, this is going to work, but maybe it's like a 5% chance now. <laughs> and, and I was, let's just say I'm very happy to have been proven wrong. It's it's funny when you say that, Scott. You know, I, I, we I've often heard similar things, and and James, aren't you happy he took a shot, right, and a chance at this? So it sounds like you guys really did some neat stuff. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm 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 very grateful. I mean, both professors, you know, Ninglin and Scott that I worked with, I guess they they have a, a knack for a vision um, and and taking a chance on it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really had no clue where it was going either at the time, to be honest. You know, when you're kind of young and dumb, I guess, in, in a lab, you're just seeing what can happen. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a it was a good time. All right. So now you're getting our audience super excited about, you know, what you're actually talking about and, and what, so tell us about the designs, tell us about your experimental design, how you conducted your study. Um, you know, James, I'm so glad you convinced Scott to let you move forward with this project, but what, what did your design look like? Sure. So first off, we kind of identified this enzyme, which we, we knew in previous research had um, it's, it's shown to have the ability of breaking down these organophosphate pesticides. Um, and we thought organophosphate pesticides were quite a good place to start because they're pretty well used. I think at, at one point, 30% of um, insecticides around that number were, were organophosphates. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, this enzyme is a proven way of breaking these things down. If we can get that into a bee, then maybe it can uh, you know, have a positive impact. The only issue is when you when you throw um, a lot of enzymes into you know the acidic gastric tract um, or you know an, an environment which it's um, not normally used to, um, it can become denatured, etc., um, and not functional anymore. And so we needed to somehow provide a vehicle to deliver that enzyme in a way which it could stay in the bee's gut for long enough that it could do its job and break down those organophosphates. So we, we kind of, this is again from very, very fresh eyes, not fully understanding bee entomology or anything. We, we thought, okay, if we could maybe mimic the food that bees eat and keep the keep, uh, enzymes safe in that um, vehicle, if you like, um, then maybe the, the enzyme could stay uh, stable long enough to do its job. And so we created these microparticles, which could withstand the, the acidity in the gut tract of the bee. And we um, encapsulated the enzyme with that microparticle. It's a, it's a simple um, calcium carbonate microparticle. So upon um, meeting acid, it will essentially create a very slight basic environment around um, the kind of periphery of the microparticle. And that basically allowed the enzyme to do its job. Um, and so we found that when, when, when we actually fed these uh, microparticles in a sugar syrup, 
um, at the same time as exposing um, these bees orally to organophosphates, the, the bees managed to survive um, because the enzyme successfully broke the pesticide down. If we just fed the enzyme on its own without the microparticle, uh, the bees showed some improvement in, in health, but um, typically they, they wouldn't do anywhere near as well as the uh, microparticle loaded um, enzymes. Ooh, there's like a thousand questions I want to ask as a Sorry, yeah, that was a, that was a okay. waffle. <laughs> no, it's really okay. I, what I'm thinking is that the scientist is kicking in now, not the extension specialist. <laughs> so, so you've got these groups of bees. So correct me if I'm wrong. I want to make sure I understand the experimental design correctly. So you've got these groups of bees. Um, one group just received the organophosphate. I'm assuming it probably died during the study. And then another group would have, would, would have received the uh, microencapsulated enzyme. And then another group received both. And you, you saw some clear differences between treatment groups. Correct me if I'm wrong, set the stage better um, um, if I've messed something up. So let, let me know kind of how you did it and specifically what you found. Like what fold differences in survival were you seeing? Things like that. No, yeah, there you go. So um, essentially, as you said it, we, you know, we took um, different groups, ones which we would just expose to pesticides or kind of phosphates, um, and ones which we would also treat with our, our microparticles, um, as well as exposing them, of course. And um, inevitably, the ones that weren't treated, they would all die. Um, and it would, you know, it would depend on the dosage as to how fast they would die. Um, but, you know, typically, we try to do these experiments quite fast with many repetitions. So we'd give them quite a high dose um, and they would die within 24 hours. And then the ones that we treated, I think off the top of my head, around 80% would survive um, relative to ones which all died in 24 hours. Um, and so, and we tried this out with different forms of organophosphate. So we tried it with malathion um, and paroxone, um, which is um, a kind of, a cousin of parathion, which I think is commonly used. Um, but the reason we tried different pesticides because um, some of those um, pesticides within the organophosphate family have different structures which are actually broken down um, in different ways by the same enzyme. So um, I don't know if this is getting too technical, but- No, it's not at all, keep going. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so there's, there's, there, there'll be different rates in which these pesticides can be cleaved by the enzyme. Um, because of the kind of the linkages. So there'd be a thiol linkage in the malathion and a, and a different one in others. And so that's why we, um, you know, had to make sure we covered a decent breadth of, of pesticides. And so, yeah, I think there was, there was, you know, there was a very clear conclusive difference that um, showed that actually feeding these things would improve the survival rate. So let me, let me ask a couple of follow-up questions then kind of thinking, this, thinking still about this. So um, when you provided the, the product, this microencapsulated enzyme that you have, you fed that in advance of the organophosphate exposure or shortly after the organophosphate exposure? And like, like what's the timeline associated mm. with that? So simultaneously, so we'd, we'd provide a pollen ball, which was contaminated with a known concentration of pesticide. And then at the same time, we would have a test tube of syrup um, which contain the microparticles. It's fascinating. And, and, and you got prolonged protection. You had mentioned a little earlier that the microparticle was necessary in order to maintain the integrity of the enzyme. So do you have any information on, on you know, they get a single dose of this microparticle encapsulated enzyme and therefore they're protected X amount of days or hours or, or what? So, yeah, so we, we looked at how the microparticles traveled within the gut, which was quite an interesting um, thing to look at. So we, we tagged the microparticles um, with a fluorescent tag, and then we would, uh, we would dissect the guts out and see at what point um, or how far the microparticles had got down the gut tract, you know, after however many hours of feeding. Um, and so we found that after 12 hours, the microparticles were still in the gut tract, whereas if you kind of just left the enzyme to be fed on its own, that would kind of disappear and be mashed up by the gut quite quickly, um, you know, by the acidity by the there. So, yeah, up to 12 hours after that, the, the, the microparticles would probably just essentially dissolve in the gut tract uh, and be gone after that. So um, it's, it's definitely not something which, you know, is going to provide a, a vaccine, if you like, um, sure. for, for people in this day and age. Um, but, but it, yeah, it provides a, a safe net, you know, during that, that day where B might be exposed. 
So I, I do want to ask them one more kind of like follow-up question, then I'll yield the floor, because it sounds like, you know, a lot of this information is going to be in the manuscript you guys have published. Like I said, we'll make sure and link that in the show notes. But but I've, I've had discussions with others before kind of thinking um, similarly, protectively, et cetera, with bees. So where, where in the bee does the enzyme do its work such that if an organophosphate is taken into the mouth of the bee, the bee's okay until mm. the point that, that the organophosphate gets where it needs to do its damage? Does that mm. question make sense? I know that's a weird question. Yeah. But essentially, where do the two meet? And in some cases, is it too late? Or you yeah. always got good protection? Well, Scott may be able to correct me on this, but it was our understanding that a lot of the kind of absorption into the hemolymph of any kind of nutrients and or, you know, um, neurotoxins um, would take place in the mid-gut. So after the um, honey crop, you'd get the, the mid-gut um, would extract, you know, any pollen um, into that digest part of the digestive tract. And so it was our thinking that if we managed to get the enzyme into that section, um, as those solids were being broken down and absorbed, um, we could, you know, simultaneously meet it with this with this enzyme, which could break them down into non-toxic components, which may be absorbed into the hemolymph, but they wouldn't be able to do their job of, of you know, providing a, um, a neurotoxic effect. So, so yeah, in the, in the mid gut. Yeah, no. I, all, all I can add is that, sure, you know, a pesticide, especially a water soluble pesticide, can certainly even be a contact exposure on the outside of the bee. You can still have uh, uh, some absorption, and you know toxicity can result from that. But the vast majority of absorption happens happens in the midgut. So it's a sort of analogous to our small intestine, you know, for for humans, where that's a lot where the where the nutrients are being absorbed, the toxins are being absorbed, uh, you know, et cetera. So if that's where the microparticle is working, that's that's the best place for it to be working. That's absolutely fascinating. I love science, don't you, Amy? <laughs> I love science <laughs> and I love communicating <laughs> science. Um, I have two, I guess I just have two final questions for you. That I guess the first one is um, what re research needs to be done next? And then, you know, if there is a resulting product, how can this how can these enzyme loaded microparticles be used by beekeepers? That's that's like the million dollar question, right? <laughs> right. These are, these are juicy questions. I like um, how Scott is just laughing. He's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks for asking I'll, that question. <laughs> I'll, I'll let James go first, but yeah, no, I've been having lots of fun discussions with folks about this and, and some people are not very happy about this technology. I have, I have to talk about that too. Yeah. That, that's a whole nother, another topic. Um, yeah. So, so future research, I guess, the imminent thing that we've been trying to work on is how can this be applied to multiple different pesticides? Um, you know, whether it might be a fungicide or a herbicide. Um, that these are also things which um, are kind of known to have uh, you know negative impacts impacts on bees. Um, and this, and we've we've developed a um, follow-on design, um, which I can talk about very briefly if you want. But a follow-on design which can uh, the idea is it can actually absorb selectively all these different types of pesticides which are out there, which form this cocktail, which is sort of known to be especially detrimental, right? The, the, the cocktail of all these different types can form these synergistic effects um, and detrimentally impact bees. So yeah, definitely looking at how we can expand the, the plethora of pesticides we can address. And then I guess also uh, looking at how we can increase the time in which these things are uh, functional within the bee. So 12 hours, obviously, it's, it's a good start, but it's it's not enough um, if we're trying to make this a really practical solution for beekeepers. I, I have a quick comment, I guess, on how we can use this um, for for beekeepers and how it might turn into something that they might use routinely. We've we've been working on this um, for best part of a year now um, as a as a company, and you know how we can how can we create a product which beekeepers can seamlessly integrate into their beekeeping practices. And I think um, you know there are there are all sorts of situations um, in which a beekeeper might want to use this, but we've kind of landed on trying to just put it into their routine feeds, um, so they're not really having to specifically worry about when a pesticide exposure might happen because you know that's obviously extremely hard to predict. Um, but if they can just put it into their feed 
in a way which was cheap and economical for them, that might be a good solution. So we're working on basically advancing your typical bee feed, you know, whether that might be a pollen, well, essentially a pollen patty, um, and, and trying to get it into, into bees in that way. There's probably follow-up questions, but I'll let Scott go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, what I can say too is that, you know, from our, from our lab, we find that, you know, bees are, are commonly exposed to pesticides. So almost always, almost every single sample that we take from a bee colony is going to have, you know, a pesticide residue in it, but generally fairly low levels of those pesticides, except during pollination. So just to put in some numbers here, we just published a paper on blueberry pollination uh, in Michigan. And on average, honeybees are exposed to 35 different pesticides simultaneously when they're doing blueberry pollination. Here in New York, in New York apple, 17 different pesticides simultaneously is coming back in with the pollen. That's what's in the, the freshly collected bee bread uh, that they're, they have in their hives, right? So there's a lot of pesticides that gets a, you know, I think what, what is, you know, I think the important one important next step is not just targeting organophosphates here, uh, but other pesticides as well. But also, you know, you have to think about what, like, what are the major pesticides? What are the ones that are really risky? And what are the ones that you want to take out? And oftentimes it still is organophosphates. So chlorpyrifos is one of them. Malathion, which is one of the ones that, uh, that James studied here, is oftentimes one. Uh, and phosmet is, a, is another one. So those are three organophosphates that we oftentimes see at fairly high levels um, during pollination. You know, why, is, why are those exposures during, coming you know, during pollination? It probably has something to do with the fact that they're systemic insecticides. So they're just in the environment. No, no grower that I know is spraying those during pollination, but they're just in the environment. So bees are be, uh, coming into contact with them. So anyways, uh, you know, regarding pesticide exposure, I think that's a, defi a definite you know, uh, uh, way to go. But I guess what I want to talk a little bit about too is, great, so you know, we, are, we are providing immunity to one managed pollinator, honeybees, and that is obviously helping, well, it could you know, help beekeepers, especially during these high-risk pollination events when, when bees are oftentimes exposed to pesticides. But what does that mean for the sustainability of cropping systems? You know, does this mean that, okay, you know, any grower should just um, now say, well, great, we've made bees immune to pesticides, so we can just spray willy-nilly. Well, clearly that's not the message we want to send, right? But how do you not send that message? How do you say, all right, this is, this is a good technology, this can help beekeepers, but how do you make it so it doesn't provide incentive to not really consider what, uh, you know, what you're doing in this whole cropping system to avoid exposure to other non-target organisms that may not be able to be fed you know, in this particular technology? And that is a very interesting question. You know, I think it's sort of a philosophical question <clears throat> on the one hand, but also maybe a practical question. You know, could we potentially develop feeders or, or something along those lines, uh, you know, use our knowledge of chemical ecology to attract particular beneficial insects to, to uh, you know, these particular feeders where you make be, uh, bees or, or predators or ladybugs or whatever immune to pesticides or not. Uh, you know, so practical question, but also philosophical, like, do we even want to do that? Is this sort of like the next step in, in making a cropping system even further from an actual natural system? And is that something we want to do or not? I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. But I do think there, there's some really interesting questions that, that, that this technology brings up. Well, geez, I thought you were going to have the answer for us. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very complex. I mean, I think that our ag system is just very complicated, um, and I'll just I'll just kind of leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think from from our side, um, just to add to Scott's comments, I think that it's you know it's definitely not a uh, a final solution that that we need for preventing insect deaths forever. I think obviously the 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 ultimate solution has to be safer alternatives in what we spray. Um, but until that point, um, it might be a good idea to, to, you know, start trying to save some of those insect lives until we do reach that utopia. But I think that if this is going to be used, it does need to be used with, um, a great deal of education around what this is actually doing. Um, and making sure that it's very clear that this is not providing, um, a space, a safe space for all, um, all 
beneficial insects. We're never going to be able to save all beneficial insects. Um, we're only going to be able to save the few that we might be able to treat. So, um, you know, it is it is a useful tool, but it's definitely one which needs um, some inf good information disseminated around. So guys, that's just very, very, very exciting. I really can't wait to see where this goes. I really appreciate James, you and Scott both joining us here on this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Thanks very Thanks much. For Absolutely. Everyone, for your benefit, make sure you check out the show notes so that you can see the link to the manuscript. Also, please visit the websites of Dr. Scott McArt, again, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell, and James Webb, who's the founder of Beemunity, who did a lot of this work while he was a master's student at Cornell. Thank you again for listening to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. We are on our second five-minute management of the year. Five-minute management. We are looking at queen rearing and the types of colonies that you need to rear great queens. Jamie, hold on. I need to get my timer out and let me know when you're ready and I'll go ahead and push start. I'm ready, but I can guarantee you I'm going to bust wide open the five minutes because there's <laughs> there's a few things we have to discuss here. So Okay, I'll give you six minutes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Thanks. You're so you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Gosh, I'm, I'm so scared to start because I know it's going to take a while, but I, I want to make sure and get this out. First of all, there's lots of ways to produce queens. So I'm going to really just kind of go over the types of colonies one would use in a standard commercial queen breeding operation. Generally speaking, there's four types of colonies. I mean, you could argue that there's actually five types of colonies because that fifth type of colony is the colony that holds the queen who's producing the offspring that you want to make queens out of in the first place. But assuming that that colony is not in the mix at the moment, once you have grafted these queens and are ready to go, you're going to need four colonies to kind of get the four types of colonies to get them through to maturity. They are starter colonies, builder colonies, mating nukes, and drone source colonies. So starter colonies, builder colonies, mating nukes, and drone source colonies. So starter colonies, like the name implies, are colonies that begin the queen production process. So we're going to be talking about grafting in a future five-minute management, but grafting is essentially the, the, the process of taking a super young female larvae and putting them into a human-made queen cup. And what you're doing is wanting to put that queen cup into a colony that is queen-less so that they'll want to make a queen in the first place, but that is also absolutely slammed with young nurse bees. These are the bees that make royal jelly, the royal jelly necessary to feed developing larval queens. So the way to do this is you really need a lot of nurse bees, number one, but number two, you've got to give them a lot of open brood in these starter colonies to keep them producing a lot of brood food or royal jelly in the first place. So a starter colony, for example, may be a five-frame nuke where there's honey against one wall of the box, pollen against the other, and then two frames. So frames, if you let's think about it another way. There's five frames. So frame one, two, three, four, five. One, frame one is honey, frame five is pollen. Frames two and four are open frames of cat brood. Again, just to make sure the uh, nurse bees in there are cranking out the brood food. The middle frame, frame three, is where you're going to put your grafted cells. So with all these young nurse bees in a queenless colonies, cranking out the brood food, they're going to be ready to start taking those larvae you grafted and push them toward becoming a queen. Now, again, these starter colonies that be very strong, they can deplete their resources quickly. So a lot of folks like to feed these starter colonies. And typically these grafted cells are left in starter colonies the first 18 to 24 hours uh, before they're moved on to the next step. So again, you start them in these queenless, nurse bee rich environments prior to moving them to the second type of colony, the builder colony. Now, 
The builder colony is the one that finishes the queen cell. And think of it this way. Imagine having two deep boxes absolutely slammed with bees. In the bottom most box, you've got the queen from that hive, a lot of sealed brood and a lot of drawn comb, so a functioning hive. Then you have a queen excluder on top of that box so that the queen can't go upstairs. And in that second box, the uppermost box, again, frames one through 10, frames one and two might be honey and pollen, frames nine and 10 might be honey and pollen. The rest of the frames, that would be three through uh, eight, are all uncapped brood, again, to force a lot of nurse bees up into that uppermost box. And in the very centermost frame would be the frame where you move your queen cups. So it's almost like a starter colony placed on top of a functioning colony that has a queen. But you want to keep that queen separated from where you're producing queen cells in that uppermost box. Essentially, what you want is a super strong colony full of a lot of nurse bees. But it's so strong that the queen's pheromone is a little bit diluted so that they want to continue that queen production process. It's almost like you're trying to get them to make swarm cells. They think they're making swarm cells, but they're really queen cells that once they're capped, move to the third type of colony, which of course would be the mating nuke. So a mating nuke is usually a small, much smaller dimensionally box that's absolutely full of bees. You've got honey and drone comb uh, in that mating nuke and you'll pluck off one of those queen cells that's right from your builder colonies and place it into a mating nuke. You'll have one cell per mating nuke. That's the hive in which the queen is going to emerge from her cell and from which she is going to go out to mate. Well, if she's going to go out to mate, you must have the fourth type of colony, which is the drone source colony. If you think back to the last podcast episode, I told you you've got to select two main types of colonies. One, this, the queen stock and two, the drone stock. So the drone stock colonies will be full-size colonies managed normally in the mating apiary and also sited at apiaries around the mating apiary, these apiaries being a half a mile to a mile away from the mating apiary so that you're saturating the area with the drones that you selected. Now you want to coerce these drone source colonies to produce more drones than they otherwise would. So at least one, but at best, two frames in the brood box of every one of these drone source colonies will be drone foundation frames on which the worker bees build drone combs so that the colony produces a disproportionate number of drones. So to summarize what's way over five minutes, starter colonies to begin those queen cells, builder colonies to finish them out, mating colonies to move those cells into when they're ready for the queen to emerge and drone source colonies to provide enough drones for those virgin queens that you'll be producing. So how bad did I do, Amy? I know I went way over. You didn't do that bad. I mean, honestly, I stopped the timer, but I was still listening to you and still learning. So I think we're good. I think, <laughs> I think everyone you're just trying will to make me you. feel better. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week, we are going to be releasing a five-minute management on queen rearing for specifically, we're going to be talking about grafting. And so I'm pretty excited for that one. But, um, you know, Jamie, that's okay. We could have a <laughs> five, seven, 10-minute management. Well, good, good, good. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome to the question and answer segment. Jamie, our first question for today, someone has asked about something called tarper. And so they've heard that honeybees go into a state of tarper or hibernation in the wintertime. Can you explain what this is and what's going on? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't heard the word uh, torpor in a very, very, very long time. When, when I think about, you know, having worked with honeybees, I think about the state of or condition that they go into during winter. I often liken it to hibernation. So hibernation can be a type of uh, torpor, but it's not the exclusive type of torpor. So essentially, it means slowing down one's responsiveness 
or physiological function during a specific, say, time of year. So imagine, for example, how bears, they eat a lot in spring, summer, and early fall to store up a lot of fat. And if, you, and if they live in an area that gets very cold, they'll hibernate all winter. Why would they do that? Why would honeybee colonies likewise go into this state of torpor or hibernation through winter? Well, it's, if you think about it, hibernation, torpor, usually these things are brought on when an organism, often brought on at least, when an organism relies on resource availability to maintain its activity. Therefore, when the resources aren't available, it behooves them to slow that activity significantly so that there won't be such a great demand for the resources. Let's, let's just use bears as our first example. Bears eat berries, uh, fish, you know, depending on the type of bear that is, it might eat roots, it might eat all kinds of things that are often readily available in spring, summer, and early fall. But if the rivers freeze or the lakes freeze, they perhaps can't get to fish. We know the plants are uh, in, in their state of torpor right through winter. So there's no berries and fruits, vegetables, nuts, and these things available to bears. So bears then invest heavily when resources are available in putting on a lot of weight. And then throughout winter, that weight in, in, in the way of fat creates the energy and therefore the heat necessary to keep the bear alive at a reduced metabolic rate so that they can survive a resource poor time of year. Well, honeybee colonies are exactly the same. Honeybees use nectar, they convert it to honey, and honey is their energy source. Well, nectiferous plants aren't available in much of the temperate world for late fall and winter. Now, we live in Florida, we've got nectiferous plants available a lot of the year, but even in Florida, there's a period of time, as for example, up here in north central Florida, where the University of Florida is, it's, you know, December, January, and February, there's not enough resources available to honeybee colonies. If these colonies were active through these months, they would burn out of their reserves. So what they do, like bears, is they will store up lots of honey in anticipation of the resource poor time of year. So they'll go collect a lot of honey, put it in their combs, and they essentially become a hibernating animal throughout winter. They slowly work through their energy reserves, maintain the basic activities of life, create heat, stay alive, reduce their metabolic activity, et cetera, and slowly go through that. Honey is essentially the fat stored by the colony, the beast. And just like bears use their fat to stay alive and stay warm, honeybees use their uh, fat in the, in, the, in, the, in the way of honey to stay warm and stay alive throughout winter so that they're ready to meet the world head on when late winter and spring come around. Gosh, bees are so cool. It's just amazing, you know, what they're capable of doing and just, just to survive. Right. Um, so it's kind of funny also, because I think I called it tarpor and I meant torpor. torpor. <laughs> it's okay. It's a hard word. <laughs> it's really hard. hard for me, especially given my <laughs> Southern, Southern draw. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, while you were kind of explaining that first question or why you're answering that first question um that kind of took me to the second question that we have and that's you know whether bees forage if there's nothing to find so this person was asking and basically saying that it was mid-november they're in maine it's really cold the bees are kind of coming and going but there's nothing really out there for them so are they out foraging are they just being optimistic you know what are they what are they looking for so the, the, the first question they ask is really important. Do they forage when there's nothing to find or essentially nothing available? And the answer is no. So if there's truly nothing available in the environment, no nectar, no pollen, and they are still flying, then they are not foraging, at least for nectar and pollen. So why might they be flying? Well, there's a couple of other reasons bees might fly, even at the time of year you suggest. Number one, they simply could be defecating. Bees like to leave the hive to defecate. When all goes well, they prefer to leave the hive to defecate. So maybe they're just taking what people call cleansing flights. Number two, bees can be taking orientation flights where it's a new cohort of bees that are finally ready to go out into the field. And they're just simply flying around the nest, trying to figure out where their nest is in the greater uh, landscape. And in this case, 
these orientation flights will ultimately cease and lead to no foraging at all if there's no forage available in the environment, right? So defecation, we've got uh, orientation flights. Bees can also fly to collect rhizomes. Perhaps they need propolis, right? They'll make propolis from these rosins or tree saps or sticky substances from plants. So maybe they're out there collecting rosins. They can also go out and collect water. It's unlikely if it's really as cold as you suggest in Maine that they're out there collecting water. Water is used to cool nests and less so, uh, or not at all really, to heat nests. So, but it's possible that they could be collecting water. Some suggest to dilute sugars in some cases, depending on what you're feeding them uh, in the way of solid food versus uh, liquid. And then of course, there's some evidence that high pathogen loads can drive bees to fly when they otherwise wouldn't be. And this might be a way to facilitate the spread of those trans, uh, the, the spread of those pathogens between colonies. It's unlikely that to me, it's much more likely that they're taking cleansing flights, maybe orientation flights, but, but there's a lot of reasons that they could fly even in the absence of a true forge. Yeah. I remember when I first became a beekeeper and it was winter. And I remember on the first you know, warm ish day in that winter, there were a bunch of like dead bees out front, but then there were also bees that were just coming in and out of the entrance. And I'm like, what is going on? But I mean, they were just doing their cleansing flight, even though it was still winter, there was still snow. It was just a little bit of a warmer day. So that's pretty neat. All right. So the third question we have, this person is asking what they need to do with frames from a terminated colony. Um, so, you know, basically you've got your hive, you've got frames with honey, pollen, brood and you know how what are you supposed to do with this how do you i guess store it do you store it inside can you store it in your office what would this look like <laughs> well we get these types of questions a lot and what this tells me right is this is normal first of all because colonies die if you have 10 colonies one two three or four are going to die throughout the year so you're going to be left with hives where the combs are perfectly good they may even have honey and pollen and you don't want them to go to waste so there's a couple, there's a bit of a decision tree that I'm going to walk you down based to, to tell you what I would do with the combs. Number one, do you have a good grasp of why the colony was terminated in the first place? For example, if they died to Varroa or small hive beetles or chill or starvation, then the combs are instantly reusable. If you've got some honey and combs that you want to give to another colony, just do it. If you have some pollen combs you want to give to another colony, then do it. If you don't have a need for those combs instantly, then you could store them. And my favorite way to do that is in a freezer. You can put them in a, leave them in their box and move that box to a, another strong colony, a colony that's sufficiently strong enough to cover and protect those combs from wax moths or small hive beetles. So there's quite a few things you can do. You can reuse the combs instantly. You can store them, et cetera. However, there are some instances where folks don't know what killed the bees or they do know and are worried about uh, future use. For example, if you have reason to believe that it was a pesticide exposure to kill the bees, I would get rid of the combs, right? I wouldn't want to reuse them and expose the next round of bees to those pesticides. If it was American fowl brood that was leading to the weak colony that ultimately led to your terminating that colony, I wouldn't reuse the combs. I'd burn the combs and discard the combs because I wouldn't want to move that over to another colony. So what if it was something like a virus disease or European fowl brood or chalk brood? Well, you know, there's split thoughts about this. Some folks like to put those combs into storage for a set period of time, two or three months, in hopes that the pathogen loads will decrease naturally and you can use the combs safely. There's some research that suggests using the combs instantly doesn't do anything at all negative to the colony to which you move those combs. So my, and, and to be honest, there's not really great research out there at the moment on what the best strategy is. I know we've talked on the podcast before about methods of sterilizing combs and how we all wish we had them, but we currently don't. So maybe a good way for me to talk about it, Amy, is what would I do if I had combs that weren't pesticide uh, exposure uh, related deaths or weren't varroa or small high beetles, but might've been a virus or might've been nosema or something like that. I would probably put the combs into storage for two months, protect them the way that I would have the other way, for, you know, freeze them, uh, something like that. And then I'd use them next spring when making new colonies and I wouldn't really worry too much about it. Uh, there, there are lots of ways to store comb. I mentioned freezing. We've talked about this, I know, before in other podcasts, but a lot of folks don't have access to freezers. There's some chemical methods to store combs to protect them from wax moths. 
using paradichlorobenzene or wax moth crystals. There's ways you can do it to increase light and airflow through combs, but you really want to protect those combs because they really are gold. It takes bees energy to make those combs. And that's why I really prefer freezing and some of these other methods. We have a document on protecting combs from wax moths and that document lists a lot of good pointers on how to protect combs in general. So we'll make sure and link that document in the show notes uh, and make it related to this specific question. So folks can find out more information. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably going to, it's, definitely super helpful. Uh, I just had this question actually the other day and it was, it was simply because they were pulling their honey super off their colony because they wanted to treat. And so they were like, what do I do with this? Where do I put it? And can I just keep it in? You know, I don't have a freezer. So where do I put it? It's like, well, talk to Jamie Ellis and he will provide you resources. <laughs> well, that's why I wanted to make sure we, we link to that document. Again, it's written from a controlling wax moths and stored comb perspective, but yeah. really the recommendations on storing the comb in that document are relevant to, to regardless of how you want to, uh, what reason you're storing combs. Absolutely. All right, everyone, uh, let us know if you have any other questions. We would love to hear from you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. 